0: Thank you, Russell. There's something good about congregational singing, isn't there? Hearing one another sing songs to the Lord. Genesis chapter 49 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We've come a long ways in Genesis. It seems like years ago that we started in Genesis 1.1. It was in the beginning. Vince, Vince was young when we started, but it's been good. And so we're, we're getting close to the end of Genesis, there's 50 chapters, and so we're, we're getting right up towards the edge. And if you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God promised that he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent, the snake crusher, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ who would come. And so ever since then, so much of G- Genesis has just been walking through these people who, well, is this person the snake crusher? Well, is that person the snake crusher? And seeing their lives and tracing this line of the Messiah. We had Abel and Seth and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and finally, we get to Joseph, and it looks like Joseph is the one. We, we learn about Joseph's story. He's the only patriarch. He's the only person in Genesis that we're like, his character is something that we might should look at emulating. Everybody else has major character flaws and huge sins that they commit, except for Joseph. But then we look and see he's not the Messiah. He's not the snake crusher. That God's purpose in Joseph's life is not to save his family from from their sin, but to save his family from a famine. And that the snake crusher is not going to come through the line of Joseph, but rather through the line of Judah. Judah. So last week we looked and we saw Jacob, who, who's on his deathbed, pulls Joseph in close. He pulls his Joseph's two sons Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born in Egypt, and he adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his kids. And it's interesting when we get into the history of like the twelve tribes, and we don't have time to fully get into it, but but basically. Sometimes the tribe of Joseph is what's used, and other times there's these two half-tribes, the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim, when they come together, equals the tribe of Joseph. And so if it's, if it's those who inherit the land, it's the tribe of, of Manasseh and Ephraim, while the Levites aren't counted because they, they don't inherit the land. They're the priestly tribe. If you look at the 12 tribes as the sons of Jacob, then, then Joseph is counted there, and Manasseh and Ephraim half. It's interesting to look through it. But if we're paying attention... Joseph's on his deathbed, he's talk, Jacob's on his deathbed, Joseph has talked, he's talked to Joseph, he's talked to Joseph's sons, but Joseph's not his only son. So the question we should have been asking is, well, what about the other kids? And what we have this week is Jacob now on his deathbed looking at all of his other sons and speaking a word to them. I mentioned last week that my dad passed away of cancer when I was in fourth grade. He had two years to live, and so he wrote letters to me. He bought presents for my brother and I on specific birthdays. When I was 16, I got a pocket knife, although he'd been passing, he'd been dead for six years. When I was 18, uh, he gave me a box full of all sorts of treasures. My favorite thing in that box was there was a $20 bill that said, fill up the pickup and just go drive in circles. But that was in 2008 when gas prices were about where they're at now. And so... We laughed. and like, we might be able to do a half circle. I don't think we can do a full circle. Uh, My dad worked at a newspaper, and so he wrote articles upon articles. And I can read those. that were written to a broader people. uh, But I read them, and I can hear my dad, and it feels like he's talking to me. And I showed you a book last week that my dad wrote, which sounds more impressive than what it is. It was questions, and then he just answered the questions so that my brother and I could get to know him when he passed away. But there's one other thing my dad left. He died in 2000. Cell phones were merely a distant thought. So the camera was not an option. And what my dad did was he bought an old VHS camcorder. And he recorded himself talking to my brother, my mom, and I on this VHS camcorder. The quality's rough. It didn't have selfie mode, so like the top of his head is not in the frame. The AC in the house would kick on and off, and so it's hard to hear sometimes, and other times it's not hard to hear. But that is the only recording I have of his voice. And so I watched it uh, maybe a year after he'd passed away with our family, and and we cried, but it's on a VHS tape, and so we never watched it again. We kind of stuck it on the back shelf. We had it, and, and honestly, I wanted to watch it as I got older, but I was scared. VHS is break. Those tapes get dry. And so last year for Christmas, my stepdad worked hard and secretively, and he gifted my mom, my brother, and I with a DVD copy of that that video. And so for me, it was so neat. I get to hear my dad's voice again, hear him talk. Morgan, who had only heard stories, got to see him address fourth grade Ben. My kids get to hear him. And in this video that my dad made, much of it is just simply him talking to us about our personalities, the parts that he loved about us and who we kind of hoped that we would grow up into being. Like, if you need a crack, come over, we'll play it, it'll work. When I was studying this passage, it just kept ringing in my mind that this is what Joseph is, Jacob is doing for his sons. He's looking at his sons while he's on his deathbed. He's he's saying, this is kind of who you are, and this is who I I hope or I know that you'll become. Now, the difference is um, (laughs) Jacob has the inspired word of God written with his, so his are going to come true. My dad did not have that. And Jacob, looking at his kids, had not been the best father. He had made a lot of mistakes. He openly had favorite sons, and everybody knew it. He looks at all of his kids here, all of his sons, and he describes their personalities and who he hopes them to be. And so what we'll do is we're going to pray, and then we're going to work verse by verse through this and just watch and see what Jacob says about sons and how it points us to Jesus. So let's pray. God, we do thank you that we get to gather today. God, we thank you for Scripture like this. that God, you give some people the opportunity at the end of their life to just speak honestly and truly. With no fear of what the future holds, because there's not much of an earthly future left for them. God, we thank you for this word. Help us to be reminded of Jesus this morning and to make much of him. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 49. Verse 1 through 4. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water you shall not have preeminence because you went up for, uh, to your father's bed and you defiled it and he went up to my couch so on, we, we look at Reuben and on paper Reuben is the oldest of all of the sons which means he should be the heir he should be the leader he should be the one who handles all these things he should be the snake crusher or, or the one who through the line of the snake crusher comes but what we know about Reuben in Genesis is he makes plans and they never work Reuben planned on rescuing Joseph out of the pit when the family threw Joseph in there. And then Reuben had to leave. And when Reuben left is when Judah says, let's just sell him to these guys and make a quick buck. It's Reuben who when they find they they have to leave one of the brothers in Egypt and they come back and and they want Benjamin to go with them and Jacob is like, I'm not sending my other favorite son. You've already killed one of them. It's it's Reuben who goes, well, you can have my two sons and then I'll take Benjamin and we'll just call it a wash. And it just does not work for Reuben. We can see that he disqualified himself. That there was pride there. We can see that he's strong and that he leaned into his strength. He leaned into his might. He leaned into honor and power. Which can all be good things, but he's explicitly said that he's not reliable. They're in the midst of a famine, and Jacob goes, you're as reliable as water. And so he was passed on from the snake crusher, but that's the the tribe of Reuben. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi, are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory not be joined to their company. For their anger, in their anger, they killed men, and in their willingness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So if you remember Simeon and Levi, these are the next two brothers. And they're ruthless and they're violent. Remember, Dinah was was defiled. Jacob didn't do anything. And so these two brothers said, we're going to go get revenge. And so they trick this whole country of men. And they massacre them, kill them all as revenge for what happened to their sister. And so it's interesting what Jacob says, their curses, right? They were together in that sin. And so their curses, they're going to be scattered. Verse 8. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up, and he stooped down and crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding the foal to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Judah here, in the way Jacob describes Judah, is foreshadowing the, the, the Christ that's going to come, but it's the future of Israel. Judah becomes the royal tribe. David is from the line of Judah. Solomon, David's son, is from the line of Judah. This is where the kings come from. Yet this prophecy is far greater than just saying kings are going to come from you. This is the line of the snake crusher. He's pointing to the Messiah. He's pointing to the anointed one. He's pointing to the Savior who is also a king. See, the Savior King's rule and the Savior King's reign will be over all the peoples. Did you catch that? Not people, peoples, plural. It'll be unmatched in beauty, unparalleled in prosperity. I don't think you guys picked up on it. Um, Maybe we need to ride our donkeys more to understand what's happening when he says these things. But he says, you're going to take your donkey and you're going to tie him up to the choicest vine. That means the best vine. If you Let's just think about this. When we drive our donkeys to Walmart and there's all of these grape vineyards for us to pick which vine we want to tie our donkey to. Y'all don't seem to be reciprocating this. Okay. I'm not much of a donkey man myself. But I know this. They eat. And so if you tie a donkey to the choicest vine, it's going to eat the grapes and it's going to eat the vine, thus making it not the best vine. So what Jacob is saying about this tribe of Judah is like what we would say if you use a $100 bill as a Kleenex. Like he's going to be so well off that he's going to tie his donkey to the choicest vine. Or instead of using water, you know, that cheap stuff to do your laundry, this king is going to be so wealthy that he's going to wash his clothes in wine. This is the symbol of a prosperous king, a prosperous kingdom. But there's also more symbolism, more layers in this because a shirt washed in wine is going to be stained red. And one of the ways the grapes are described in here is the wine is the blood of the grapes. Did you know that Zechariah and his prophecies that come spoke of a future king who would come in riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and would bring salvation and blessing to his people? None of the Davidic kings or their successors do that none would live up to that reality except for one none of them would establish a kingdom that was so well off that everybody is tying their donkeys to the choicest vine and using wine as laundry detergent if God's people were ever to be blessed like that that the Lord himself would have to come and be the redeemer Isaiah, in his prophecy, speaks of the Lord coming from the east with garments stained red with the blood like someone trampling grapes. So the Lord would act to save his people and judge their enemies, to redeem all those who belong to him and establish a true and righteous and lasting peace. All of these things point us to Jesus. In Revelation 5.5, 5, Jesus is called the true lion from the tribe of Judah. And to tie all of this back together. Do you know the first miracle that Jesus does in the Gospels? It's in John chapter 2 and it's when he turns water into wine at the wedding feast. And the jars that Jesus uses to turn water into wine were typically used to carry water meant for washing. You see the symbolism that's being picked up. Washing his garments in the blood of grapes. Do you remember how Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? All the other kings would have their armies, they would have their horses, they would want everybody to be impressed with their military might, but when King Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he rides in on the foal of a donkey. In Revelation 19, Jesus is depicted as riding on a white horse and wearing a robe that's dipped in blood. In order to tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty by defeating and judging all of the foes, he truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the reality is, Jesus has always been king because he is God. Jesus in the Trinity, one God, three persons, each equal and distinct, but each 100% God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And so when Jesus comes to earth living the life that you and I should have lived and dying the death that you and I deserve, that doesn't make Jesus king. He's already king. Coming to earth shows us a king who's coming to vanquish our biggest enemy. He's not the king who sits on the throne and rules from his castle by making all of these laws that we have to follow. He's the king who puts on the weapons of war and goes to battle on our behalf. He goes to battle on our behalf because you and I sinned, and it's our sins that keep us away from King Jesus. Who's so already King? He comes to be Savior, not because He needs us, but because He loves us. To rescue us from our lostness, God Himself takes on flesh and stains His garments in His own precious blood on the cross. He took up our affliction so that we can now be washed, made pure, and made clean. In the blood of the Lamb. And when we're washed in the blood of the Lamb, our clothes become white, pure, and spotless as if we'd never sinned. And Jesus is the full fulfillment of what Jacob saw and more. He's the lion of Judah. Verse 13. Zebulon shall stand uh, dwell at the shore of the sea and he shall become a haven for ships and the border shall be Sidon. And now Zebulon lived too close to the sea. And so what ended up happening is he took, they took advantage of the trades that were offered because there was a lot of trading that went on and so Zebulon got really, really comfortable to living a luxurious life and being resting in, in, in making his earthly lot really pleasant. He's living the life he wants to live. He has all the money, all the treasures in the world. It reminds me a lot of Lot. If you remember the story of Lot from Genesis, uh, we see Lot with Abraham at first, and then their flocks get too big, and so Lot picks the good land to go to, which happens to be right next to Sodom. And then every time we see Lot, he's just one step closer to Sodom, one step closer to Sodom, until God comes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember the story, the angels are like, listen, Lot, God's about to wipe this town out. And Lot's like, well, I really enjoy the town. Let me just kind of linger here for a little bit longer. He led his wife in that. His wife's the one who turns back and gets turned to a pillar of salt. That's the warning that we have with Lot, and it's the warning we pick up with Zebulun, is that this world does offer things that can feel pleasing and that can feel good, but they also trap us in a comfort and an ease that make us resist what the Lord has. We have to ask if worldly success is worth the price we're asked to pay for. it. Issachar in verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and he became a servant at forced labor. Similar thing is Zebulun. He gets a good little plot of land and so he, he hunkers down in the short term. He works hard in the short term and it ends up being prosperous for him. And so in the long term, he ends up becoming enslaved. He's strong, but he's indifferent and he's lazy. Seems like his main point is to find a good resting place and then just kind of coast for the rest of his life. Dan, verse 16 Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, and Dan shall be a serpent in the way and a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. I'll wait for your salvation, O Lord. Serpents don't have a good track record in the Bible or really in life in general, right? The Danites will conquer their enemies through through guile and subtly, but, but true deliverance. It kind of feels odd, verse 18, where it's just thrown in there, and I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. Dan's a snake, he's going to bite people, but I'll wait for your salvation, O Lord. It seems odd, but it seems like what, what Jacob is seeing and what the Lord is giving him is, is this tribe is going to boast of military might. They're going to be a strong, physically enforcing tribe, but the reality is the victory only comes from the Lord. Gad. Still waiting for someone to name their child that. Verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad but he shall raid at their heels. This probably is a reference to the settlement when Gad takes possession of the land of the east of the Jordan. They're constantly under attack from their neighbors but Gad indeed fights back and according to, to later texts they're really good fighters. They're really good warriors. Asher, Asher's food shall be rich and shall yield royal delicacies. The produce in the land of Asher is so fine that the tribes call them delicacies and they provided food for Jerusalem. The word delicacies in Hebrew refers to like luxurious or delightful things. It's the oatmeal cream pies of the ancient Near East. And so Asher means the happy one. And that's what good food does, doesn't it? Nephtali in verse 21, Nephtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Wild is a mountain deer. It appears to denote that Nephtali as a tribe will be secure, that they're going to be able to, to reproduce and have lots of children and beautiful children. Joseph in verse 22, Joseph is fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by the spring, his branches run over the wall, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of jacob from there is the shepherd the stone of israel and by the god of your fathers who will help you by god uh, by the almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above blessings of the deep that crouch beneath blessings of the breasts and of the womb blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills may they be on the head of joseph and on the brow of him who set apart from his brothers. It, It makes sense to us that Jacob would write this long thing about Joseph, doesn't it? That's his favorite son. But his blessing to Joseph reflects Joseph's story. That he's abundantly fruitful wherever he's planted at everything Joseph touches turns to gold. Everything Joseph is in charge of works so well that he's sold to Egypt as a slave and he works his way all the way up to second in command in the whole nation of Egypt within 22 years. It's crazy to think about Joseph's rise. That his branches are well watered and they go well beyond the walls that he's set up. Attacks by archers probably refer to Joseph's uh, slanderers and the injustices that he endures all throughout his life. Yet the central word in blessing uh, in Joseph's narrative is, 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 uh, is neither his fruitfulness, like he, he grows and he's strong and everything he touches, or the affliction that he faces, but it's the purpose of God in his life. We need to get this right with Joseph. We need to make sure we understand what's happening here. Joseph's life is meant to show us that he's so centered on the Lord that his faithfulness in the midst of uh, adversity and the fruitfulness that he has comes from the Lord, not from Joseph himself. He's strengthened by the shepherd. The stone of Israel is probably not a reference to God. In other places, he's called the rock of Israel, and those are two different words that mean two different things. It probably represents a memorial. If you remember the song here, I Raised My Ebenezer, it means the stone of help. It's meant to remind us that God is our help. It's meant for us to set these things up to remind us that the Lord is Lord. In Genesis 28, 18, Jacob raises up a stone pillar at Bethel to remind him that God promised to bless him. See, the point is not for us to to exalt uh, Joseph's innate character and his faithfulness to God. The point is to show that his strength of character and his faithfulness flow from God, not the other way. Joseph didn't earn his way to the Lord by being upright and by being noble and by being faithful. Those were gifts that God gave to Joseph by God's grace. He set apart from his brothers by God. And God strengthened his faith in the midst of every bit of assault that he had, every battle, every, every issue that came up in his life. The Lord strengthened Joseph. It's interesting that Joseph is blessed by Jacob Because remember, the greater is supposed to bless the weaker. And so Jacob blesses Joseph with the blessing of fruitfulness in land, which is the one thing that being second in command in Egypt couldn't give him. This is a blessing that only the Lord can give to Joseph. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring its prey and in the evening dividing the spoil. wolf is is typically not a positive picture in scripture either think about many of the references to God's people are as sheep and that God is the shepherd and sheep and wolves typically don't get along well in fact one of the jobs as the shepherd is to shoot wolves if they get too close But there's more. The tribe of Benjamin receives a land allotment in in Canaan. that's situated between the tribes of Ephraim and Judah. And it's a war zone throughout Israel's history. In fact, the Benjaminites themselves become really well known as being a warrior tribe. They're good at fighting is kind of what we pick up here. And then verse 28. All of these 12 tribes of Israel... That's the first reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in all of the Bible. All of these 12 tribes of Israel, this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Now let's be honest. If we look at some of those blessings, they don't feel like blessings, do they? Getting called a snake is probably not the best blessing from your father on his deathbed. But what verse 28 shows us, It's so interesting with all of this. Is all of these men in this story are are fatally sinful? They've rebelled, they've not lived perfect lives. Yet they're the 12 tribes of Israel. They're who God is going to build this people from. He's not going to do it with just Joseph's offspring. He's not going to do it with just Judah's redeemed offspring. It's this whole family together that he blesses and does this with. Think about what we know. Abraham saw Ishmael, his son, cut off from the blessing of God. Isaac saw Esau, his son, cut off from the blessing of God. Jacob's sons are no better than Ishmael and Esau. It was simply God's plan and God's purpose and showing his grace on them that now this is the foundation of the people that God is going to build. See, if we look at these blessings, it shows us several things that are important for our lives. One, there is an ongoing reality and consequence of sin in the lives of people. It's not just unbelievers who exhibit deep-rooted and ongoing patterns of sins, but believers as well. And so what these blessings reveal is there's a complexity to sin that we often don't recognize. That it is, uh, there are sins that are socially reprehensible. Some of the sins mentioned here, sleeping with your father's concubine, massacring a city. We would all agree those are sins that nobody should do. Drunkenness, murder, child abuse are sins that you don't even have to be a Christian to recognize are things that are not good and that should not be partaken of. But there's also sins that are socially acceptable and encouraged. Pursuing a good life provided by rich delicacies for foreigners at the cost of your spiritual distinctness. We could argue in our time sexual permissivity, but abstinence and marital marital fidelity are are odd things. Pride, self-love, gossip, filthiness are all things that are socially acceptable. Devoting our lives to comfort and material success might leave us or our families where we think free, but actually it enslaves us to this God of comfort. We also see that sin is oftentimes multi-generational. That your parents' sin, or your your kids' sin, or your grandmother's sin, or, or whatever it is, often trickles down into us. We feel like we we never live up to this standard that they set for our lives so that we're always trying to prove ourselves to our family or we take on these responsibilities or these identities that that we're not supposed to have that somebody else is supposed to have or we take on these burdens that that we're not supposed to bear or we pass burdens off to other people that are ours to work through. But we also see that sin is not inevitable and it's not irredeemable. The the Levites' curse is that they're going to be dispersed among the nation. And God takes that and makes it a blessing for the Levites. They become the priestly tribe. Who's now set about all of the nation of Israel to make sure that they maintain their distinctness. That they teach them the laws of the Lord. That they hold the sacrifices for the the, nation. God takes this curse and makes it a blessing in the long Levites saw things black or white And this leads them to sin earlier in their life And then the Lord ends up using it for their redemption See the reality is you You and I may have been damaged or hurt By the sins of our parents or our grandparents Or our spouse or our kids And those wounds are real And they hurt and they bring about brokenness And they create struggles within us And they shape us for the rest of our lives In significant ways And God doesn't promise to wave a magic wand over us and fix those pains and remove those struggles. Yet what God does is he can often transform the effects of those curses into an opportunity for blessing. He redeems evil and brings good from it. The weakness and brokenness that family damage can do to us often helps us to appreciate the gospel of Jesus much more when we're adopted into a new family. The struggle with our own personal history can can enable us to minister to others who may be wrestling with those same struggles in their lives. Particular pain that you experience, particular loss that you have is something that God gives you to help minister to others who are going through those things. All of the sinners in this list, this 12 tribes of sinners are incorporated into the line of promise. In God's infinite wisdom, in his infinite goodness, he didn't build the glory, he didn't build Israel on Joseph, he didn't build Israel on Judah, he built it on these twelve tribes. And that includes unstable Reuben, violent Simeon and Levi comfort-loving Issachar, dangerous Benjamin, are all a part of God's saving purpose. God doesn't go out and search for for the best and the most faithful people that he can save. He comes seeking and saving the lost whose lifestyles make them the object of scorn and whose sin the world often admires and lauds and encourages But salvation from the beginning, we're in Genesis, from the beginning salvation has always been by God's amazing grace, never by our works. And then it's God who saves us and it's God who sustains us from start to finish. But the other thing these take us is the Bible does not take sin too lightly or too seriously. It's not trivial. Our sin is real. It's not something that we just wipe under the rug and pretend like it doesn't happen. It bears bitter fruits in our lives. It bears bitter fruits in the lives of others and through God's grace alone. But you can't lose your salvation if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He doesn't disinherit you just because you lied. You may be broken. We're all broken in different ways. But sin doesn't have the last word. The Bible doesn't take sin lightly and it doesn't take it too seriously. God has the last word, not our sin. We are saved by God through grace alone, and so we can't be disherited. We may be broken in different ways, but we're joined to God's people through Christ, and we can never be broken off. We can never be cast away. God's grace is greater than all of our sins. God's a better Savior than you and I are at sinning. So how should we respond in the midst of the disappointments and the trials of life when we're surrounded by people who constantly sin against us and we constantly sin against other people and we can't seem to live up to the potential that we're supposed to do? We need to recognize where true blessing comes from. How should we we react when we recognize that, that I keep sinning? I keep failing to be the person that I'm supposed to be. Where where is true blessing to be found for such people like that? Brothers and sisters, it's God's grace that enables us to wait with patience. We can wait with patience with the brokenness around us and we can wait with patience with the brokenness within us. It's God's grace that enables us not to take our sins too lightly and not to take our sins too seriously heavily it's God's grace that enables us to be called children of God even though we do not deserve it and we will continue to not deserve it because we're unstable and we're violent and we're worldly and we're treacherous and we're compromised and etc and etc and etc yet God is determined, determined to make us into a holy nation a kingdom of priests a people who belong to him We don't forfeit that because of our inadequacies and or our transgressions. Even though our sins are going to have real consequences in real life, God's saints persevere to the end, and they receive his blessing, not because we're intrinsically good or intrinsically strong, but because God's faithfulness and his commitment to bless us. Because the reality is Jesus will come again, and he will not be riding a donkey into Jerusalem this time. It will be coming on the clouds in a glorious triumph. He will bring a blessing to all who are spiritual heirs in the faith. We still wrestle with ongoing and indwelling sin, but we fight. We have circumstances around us that are broken, and we struggle with that, but we endure. Because we know that God is not done yet, and we are not finished, and the Lord is not finished with us either. So we wait with patient, expecting hearts because God has already tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we are confident that God will keep his promises. The blessings that Jacob gives his children are to remind the church of the wondrous and rich blessings of all the people of the covenant received down through the ages. But how much greater are the covenant blessings on the church today because we look at Christ and Him crucified? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words that come from Jacob that are inspired by you. God, we thank you that our salvation isn't dependent upon how great we are and how awesome we are. It's dependent upon how great you are and how awesome you are. God, if we're believers, help us to remember that. To not trivialize our sin, but not to make too much of our sin. To to recognize that we're fallen and to be real. Sanctify us, Lord. Grow us in you. Help us to mature in the faith. God, for unbelievers who might be here. I pray that you would help them to see Christianity is not about being perfect. It's about resting in the finished work of the perfect God, Jesus. God, help them to see that their their lives need to be repented. Their, Their sin needs to be repented of and they need to put their faith in you. That everything else that the world offers is fading and is a trap. But your covenant, your grace, your mercy last forever. Help us to glory in you and to make much of Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Russell's going to come back and lead us in a song.